Welcome back to In the Belly of the Beast. Uh, this is Amy Finnegan, y'all, and I am grateful to be here with my friends, Rye and Todd and Kanishka, and our special guest, my friend um, and comrade, Dr. Tanasha Garonga, who is with us in person, in studio. We've done a couple other interviews on this podcast, but um, not all together, the four of us in person. So this feels really special. So Tanasha, thanks so much for making time to, to be with us afternoon it's awesome to have you here Uh, thank you it's a great honor (laughs) Uh, so Tanashe is um, originally from Zimbabwe and he's a medical doctor and he has a master's in public health and I'm gonna ask him first to just tell me uh, tell us all a little bit about um, social medicine Tanashe is a, a, a health worker who brings a social medicine lens what does that mean what does it mean to bring a social medicine lens to as an approach to health what was compelling to you personally to approach health in this way yeah, thank you, Amy. So for me, social medicine is all about looking beyond the biological basis of disease. So in normal clinical practicing, when a patient comes, yeah, you we focus a lot more on what they're clinically presenting. So that is biologically, what is what is it that's, that they're suffering from? So could it be a bacterial disease or viral disease or whatever pathogen is caused? That. But when it comes to social medicine now, you start looking at at, okay, why is this person particularly vulnerable to that bacteria or to that virus? So you start doing root cause analysis and looking at some of the upstream factors beyond the biological uh, basis of disease. So you start looking at, people talk a lot about the social determinants of health, where you have, when you look at certain groups in a population, they are more vulnerable to certain disease or more than the other, maybe because of poverty or because of living conditions. But for me, with social medicine, you even go beyond the social med- uh, determinants of health when you're looking at why particularly some groups are affected by the social determinants. So we're looking at even some of the structural issues uh, that are there that result in certain groups being entrenched in poverty or certain groups being marginalized over the other, which all contributes to their vulnerability to, to disease. And what made me interested in in having that perspective has been like, for example, in Zimbabwe, we had the cholera outbreak 2008. That was before I was a medical student. I was still in high school. But you'd find that some of the communities that were affected most by the cholera outbreak were the poor communities, which had water and sanitation problems. So a lot of people would just talk about poor water and sanitation, but they would not ask why particularly certain neighborhoods have poor sewage systems, while other neighborhoods, more affluent neighborhoods, do not have such systems. Even in the, the HIV pandemic, Zimbabwe was one of the most affected countries by the, um, by the HIV pandemic. But when you really take a critical lens, like for example with the, with the cholera outbreak, you notice that the areas that were affected were areas that were, during colonial times, were designated for black people, uh, townships. Then the areas that were not as affected were the affluent areas, which were more spacious. And, and in the colonial times, they were designated for white people. So after independence, you'd find that those systems persisted as much as we had different government systems poorer people still continue to live in, in poorer communities with poor drainage systems, poor water and sanitation, which is persisting to uh, up to today. So when you don't really look at that, when you don't really uh, try to look at why this thing, why certain groups are not uh, vulnerable more than the other, you will not be able to come up with more comprehensive uh, solutions to address some of the some of the health issues. Even right now, when you even the HIV, the context of the HIV pandemic at the moment, when you look at uh, marginalized groups like the LGBT community, 
um, sex workers and other and policy frameworks that are in the country. All these issues really show you that the only way that we can achieve health equity is by actually looking at upstream upstream issues that uh, that that cause some groups to be more vulnerable than the other. Mm, thanks, Tanache. It's really comprehensive. Um, I also wanted to ask you a little bit. You you're an organizer. You organize with Equal Health Campaign Against Racism, which takes this social medicine lens and tries to put it into practice. Can you introduce our listeners a little bit to what that collective is doing? So the Global Campaign Against Racism was actually formed after the global practitioners of social medicine were wanted to do something. They understood the theory and they talked, but they really wanted to come up with an action uh, that they could collaborate on globally. So that's when we started the global campaign in 2017. So we're going into our f- our fifth year of the campaign, and we're really excited about it. So we have uh, we have about um, about nine countries that are involved in the campaign. Uh, some from three from Africa. Then we have Brazil. We have Haiti. We also have some chapters in the USA and India. And the motto that we have and what we aim is really we look at racism as a as a structural determinant of health. So the goal really is for people to look at how racism manifests, structural racism manifests in the local context, how it affects health, the health of the people, and then work with the local communities who are the most affected groups by racism to come up with, with solutions and ways to dismantle it, uh, so as to improve the, the health and the quality of life of those uh, the, the groups that are most affected. Thank you. Thanks, Tanache. I know that's um, been... You spent a, you've put a lot of labor into that to that collective, and there it's, it seems like a really important space for praxis. Would you? When I know one of the issues in particular that you have focused on, and you had a desire to kind of illuminate today, was around vaccine apartheid. And I'm wondering if you can just maybe give us a little picture of like what of of what that looks like, like the broad scope. We're talking about COVID nineteen pandemic, the last two and a half years. There's been all this effort to put together a vaccine, and yet that is that vaccine access is not distributed evenly, or even close to even close to that word um, across the globe. And if you could speak a little to like what is that? What is the picture of how access to the COVID nineteen vaccine looks like today, and why is that? Why is that important? So um, when I'm asked that question, sometimes I always try to emphasize the fact that it was predictable. Mm. I think when the vaccine came, we knew how the distribution would be like from experience with the HIV pandemic and, and general access to drugs and medicines and technology throughout the world. So you'd find that right now, as we speak at the moment, um, most of the most of the rich nations uh, uh, like the United States of America have about 80% coverage as far as vaccination is concerned. But with the poorer countries, you'd find low-income countries, some have their vaccination rates as low as 21%. And um, with generally, when you look at the continent of Africa, uh, the average is about 25%. So you can see the gaps uh, that are existing. And what's very important is about this is when you're in a global pandemic, you for it to end, con- con- considering how the world is interconnected at the moment, you need the 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 rest of the world the, the whole the entire globe to be on the same page so as long as as one as we leave one continent behind it will be difficult for us to end the pandemic so we are actually prolonging it in the process and making space for new variants to to come up so that's one thing then another thing is when you look at 
when the pandemic started in terms of even the context of who were the most affected groups in, in, in different countries, you'd find it was people of color, indigenous communities and all. So when you have such distribution, be it sometimes at a local at a global level or even at a local level, you notice that the most affected groups sometimes are the ones who also end up not have, not having access to to not only the vaccine but also but also medicines. But I think most importantly because this is after a long period, I think this is quite a this is a global pandemic that has happened in a world that is now increasingly connected. It has amplified some of the issues that we've been talking about a long t- uh, for a very long time, and it's, it has brought it to everyone's attention. I think that's what makes it very important and opens a window of opportunity to actually uh, dismantle some of these issues. So you find even right now, when I was flying to the United States of America, one of the things, you, some of the documentations that you need, that you get, is they need like proof of vaccinations. They encourage you to have a booster vaccine. Already that shows that certain people who may not have access to this will not have access. So that means 25% of the population of Africans who've been vaccinated are the only ones who may have the we may be able to travel without much obstacles because some airlines may or may not uh, because different different airlines, different countries have different protocols and country-specific protocols in terms of what's requirements. So it's very important because it's just highlighting how unequal the world is, how how even what's what's wrong with the global health system. And it's something that we need. And it's also really like, uh, amplifying the urgency to address some of these issues because this is not the only pandemic that we're going to have. We're going to have more pandemics in the future. And the only way that we can respond better to them is if we have true global solidarity and, and we're learning a lot from what's going on about what is wrong and what needed to be addressed. What needs to be addressed, yes. Thank you. Can I ask a question, Amy? Because this is going to be an ignorant question, asked by an American who's sort of knowledge of the situation, you know, not having, I mean, I'm not a person who uh, has any expertise in healthcare except for um, to be uh, served, and I'm using quotes, by the healthcare system of the United States. Mm-hmm. But I, it strikes me that here in the United States where vaccination is such a fraught issue, even in a country where everybody, I mean, the access to vaccination right now Pretty much anyone can get a vaccination who wants it, and yet there's a high percentage of people, or relatively high percentage of people who refuse to get it for various reasons. The way that the um, vaccination rates in the rest of the world, especially in the global south, so particularly in Africa, for example, have been represented to Americans through our media and news as if like there's really no problem right like that 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 okay so what in the global south very few people are able to have access to the to the vaccines but just doesn't seem like they're getting sick i guess and like that's kind of like the way that it's sort of been represented to us as if this is not really a problem and i wonder if you can just talk about your response to that kind of representation of a pandemic which is a a global you know sickness right but that kind of representation of the pandemic in wealthy um, Western nations about what is going on in the global South. All right, thank you. I think one of the things that I've used to, like if you read a lot of articles and opinion pieces about the pandemic, especially in the early days and going forward, there's a lot. there was a lot of speculation in terms of uh, which regions are more affected than the other and even speculations that maybe some regions are more immune. Uh, um, Africa, when they're looking at the, the death rates and all. And I think I could, right now, uh, to be honest, I think we haven't really come up with a conclusive reason why that, but some of the data that's showing now, like in retrospect, is showing that actually when you look at some regions that were 
consider not affected were actually affected a lot more but there were issues with uh with 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 uh with data that uh, that was recorded because in some cases would issues of testing because you're not only talking about covid you're talking about testing to access to testing facilities in some countries you'd find they access more access to testing facilities so they would know the don't know how many people but i think the problem what i find problematic sometimes with 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 those assumptions is it comes back to how people view certain lives as more valuable than others so essentially they think certain groups of people are more entitled to better care to better services than others so as long as the ones whose lives matter more have everything everything is okay with them some people don't really care about the rest of the world but if you look at uh, various countries you'd find that in 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 the same african countries we also lost the elderly we also lost our loved ones who had weird uh, weird pre weird underlying conditions our our icu and our icus and poor systems were also were overwhelmed by the pandemic our economic systems were also affected by the pandemic so those are some of the key issues that sometimes people may not realize uh, because they may not have a close appreciation of the country because already if you look at global media it really pays attention to our respective countries unless there's a major thing that they think would be of interest to 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 the to the to the global media even coverage of the covid-19 pandemic itself there was always biased towards uh the the, the developed world so they do not have a true appreciation of of what's happening so for a country like Zimbabwe right now I'd say one of the things that has helped us to to increase coverage has been there's been some accessing vaccines from 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 China the Sinopharm vaccines you know but imagine if we were at, we're only dependent on on Lesa Johnson Johnson AstraZeneca and Pfizer and some of these some of these vaccines have not even made it to 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 to, to other countries so it's a complicated situation with different answers because you have to also think about the geopolitics and 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 so many layers to so many layers to it so i can't really have a straightforward answer but i think these are some of my opinions in terms of already like some of the biases pre-existing biases and attitudes that we have towards certain parts of the world i'm wondering about when you know when the when the when the pandemic first hit there was a lot of talk of sort of how the pandemic is affecting certain population groups right and what we saw in sort of media and kind of popular journals and even some science journals at that time were a, was a kind of like re uh, reintroduction of sort of notions of of race that as an explanatory kind of idea that well you know there's something biologically different about certain populations that black people are more vulnerable to it because of their race i'm wondering i guess about you know with social medicine the way you described it was to kind of think beyond the biological to the social to the you know upstream as you say i'm wondering i guess the question is how much of you know as we're seeing a kind of the persistence of kind of racial science right within within even mainstream science and in within mainstream medicine how how concerned are you about um the kind of perpetuation or the persistence of of this kind of, of of race science, I guess, and do you see that as an ongoing kind of fight to be able to say, you know, the problem isn't problem isn't certain groups of people that they're somehow biologically different, but that the problem is the social structures. The problem is racism. Yeah, I guess I just want to hear your thoughts on sort of our current situation, the kind of resurgence of race science in in relation to the pandemic. Yeah. So I think when you talk about racism, we have to there are different levels of racism. And 
one of the approach, particularly in the campaign of racism, we look at the structural racism, and structural racism really looks into uh, institutions, um, structures that are in place. So, for example, people who would claim that, let's say, for example, some like in in the United States of America, we saw headlines that uh, black people were the, some of the people were most affected the most. But at the same time, you'd hear people talking talking about in Africa that certain black that they were not they were not getting as many uh, like mortality rates, for example, comparatively as they would anticipate to some extent. And so, if it was if it was on the DNA of uh, like just a person basically being black, it would have been uniform throughout the world. So I think the fact that you find that in certain communities, their particularly this population are affected the most, should make you ask why they're more vulnerable. So already we know that uh, there's been a lot of, uh, like that's when the issues of the, the social determinants of health and other things coming to play. And in multiracial societies, those end up being distributed on the basis of race. So you're now looking into structural racism while system is in, systems in place really tend to affect one group more than the other based on their, their skin color. And that comes from historical issues that are the historical structures that are in place. So I think the conversation about race is is very important in the sense that it, it, it brings an entry point to highlight those historical systems that still need to be dismantled. But I also appreciate that it also there is room for it being abused because you understand there are some people who would assume that maybe... Like in the past, there used to be problematic experiments and other things affecting where, where they were exploiting uh, black bodies uh, that are there. There was the issue of science, false science that talked about, let's say, for example, black people being able to to stay in more pain than 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 other groups, and all, which are all problematic. Which came from from very flawed science that dehumanized that with that dehumanized black bodies. So there's always that. So I think that's when some when getting into the conversation when you're looking at race as a determinant of health, I think it's always important to to really emphasize the structural component where you're really saying that no, this is due to how we have structured our societies over time. This is due to how we have continued certain systems to perpetuate and this is due to how we have valued some lives over the other. So this is now manifesting in this way. Otherwise, if it was just, it was just the, the the skin color of a person, would have it would have been uniform throughout the uh, throughout the world. I'm not sure if it answers. Yeah, I guess I, I I guess I'm wondering if if do you do you see the persistence of that kind of race thinking, the kind of race thinking that would biologize the issues, that would naturalize vulnerability. Do you see that as persisting in medicine? And do you see that as as a as a threat? And do you see that as persisting in 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 the science in medical science? Uh, definitely. Uh, when you look at a lot of medical institutions in the art sector, it has it's predominantly a biomedical uh, model. Um, that's what's persistent. So a lot of institutions don't really have that that critique of going beyond the biological basis of disease. You're just being taught that, okay, this is because of this and that, and it's just looking at the biology aspect, but you don't critique. And I think I'm grateful that 
you'd find that initiatives like social medicine are coming up, structural competency and other and other different networks that are coming up coming up globally, which are trying to really introduce a more broader lens, which are bringing in the humanities, the social sciences to say, hey, we really need to broaden our perspective of health and even the appreciation of moving away from the biomedical model, which is very, which in itself has its own problems, to try to look at a more comprehensive look. So I think it comes back to how our systems are organized in terms of like um some even would talk about let's say for example in a lot of in a lot of countries they've adopted what we call western medicine in as a way as the way forward and like as the conventional way of treating people uh, but some people are not getting interested in, in in other models and looking into additional knowledge systems looking into other more holistic approach to health that are rooted in how how certain communities that were sidelined, how they approached health. And that's sort of now also influencing approach to medicine in, in some communities, in some context. I think we are at a phase where the only way we can move away from that is if we we need to decolonize a lot of our systems, our way of thinking and our approaches, and start reimagining uh, more inclusive processes and systems. Because as long as we continue using systems that have a flawed foundation, the same issues will continue persist. The same biases will continue being coming up in the next generations. And it's the same issue. So I think we really need to relook into our systems and critically think where is the system wrong? And it takes a multi-sectoral approach. It's not only so you now have to look at broadly education and so many other things that are there. So that means we have to now say, okay, we are now living in a in where well, in this century in this space. How can we do it differently going forward? How can we transform our educational system going forward? How can we decolonize um, medical education going forward? How can we how can we bring in new ideas? How can we get indigenous knowledge from the Native Americans' approach approaches to health? What can we learn from that, and how can we integrate integrate that into to into our learning? What can we learn from indigenous communities in Brazil? What can we learn from various communities in India and other things? How can this help in improving? our approach to health and our understanding of disease. I think those are some of the issues that may help us sort of move away from from that narrow lens of just of just reducing it to a person's uh, skin color. So um, if we can kind of you know pull back the camera now from the close close up to the individual person and issues of race with that person to the larger imperial structure in which we live, right? And so you have a system which has been designed by the wealthiest countries in the world. So you have the WTO, you have the international patent laws, you have the TRIPS agreement, you have all of these things that are designed to have wealth come out from one part of the world and go to another part of the world, right? And in the case of the African continent, the structural adjustment programs, right? The condition of those programs was that governments cut back on health, cut back on education. So I wasn't surprised to say that when you said we weren't surprised by this because this was a, a disaster in the making. You know, in this country, we were told, oh, the best way to avoid infection is to put your hands on in warm water and, and soap for 20 seconds. How about the millions of people who don't have access to water, right? What are they supposed to do? And And, and, and I think the thing is that, you know, I, I appreciate what you're saying, but... It is so important in a pandemic to have a state that has the resources to distribute, to educate, to isolate, to do all the things. I mean, much as we criticize China for, you know, what, you know, its authoritarian sort of version of what it did, it is a centralized program which makes certain things possible. In this country, because everything was so decentralized, every state just did what they wanted. 
and there was no proper system. I mean, we didn't get masks. We didn't get, you know, I mean, again, the wealthiest country in the world could not provide its citizens in the early stages of the pandemic with the basic things we needed, right? So I guess my question to you is how does the state function when it has basically been destroyed by imperialism, you know, whether it's Zimbabwe or Uganda or Angola or look at look at DRC. I mean, how would a country like DRC, which has been pillaged <laughs> by the Belgians and then into the future, and now how does social health work there? Where do you have the resources to do anything? Yeah. I think your question doesn't have a simple answer, to be honest, because there are so many factors that you have to consider. And they are local factors. They are global factors. And roughly, as you said, the structural adjustment program, I, when you look at Zimbabwe, when soon after independence, when they started investing a lot into, the, in the, into expansion, the, the health sector, building more clinics, you notice that maternal mortality rates started going down. The health outcomes started improving. Then they introduced the economic structural adjustment programs to have access to retirement. They introduced user fees, which started to have uh, resulted in barriers to access to health. Because structural adjustment programs, they say health is a consumptive sector and education is a consumptive sector. Invest more in productive sectors. And we have seen that a lot in a lot of other countries. Some of the And you're imposing this in countries that are coming from systems that already had like 90% of, like a majority of their population, this franchise, like majority of the population kept out of the system. Communities that had the huge social need and a huge social gap because you have the previous colonial governments didn't invest much in the education of the majority of black people. The previous uh, government, uh, colonial governments didn't invest much in the health of, of the majority of black people. Then you come with those people, with then you approach those countries that say, stop spending on health and spend more on productive uh, sectors obviously you would expect uh the worst outcomes to come from from that and then there are also local factors like the political factors the politicians that are there we also have to hold accountable the local politicians and i always have to emphasize that because sometimes when you do not mention that a lot of people say but why are you just focusing on the global factors what about the local leaders that are there they have their own issues that they have also have to address issues as corruption and um issue, issues of corruption, nepotism and other things that you can that, that really results in, in, in misuse of funds at a at a local scale. But I think what is very important for me is the need to start the conversation, to start looking at it. Because as much as we can't change the past, the present gives us an opportunity to start to really look at what has been wrong, what has been done. And what you said when you I remember working in a rural in a, in a rural clinic and feel, feeling hopeless and powerless because as much as I wanted to give the best care to the people that I was attended to I had no essential drugs I had to turn back people home uh, without any medication without nothing and they'll be going home to die because you don't have the basic resources and this is the reality and 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 this is the reality that a lot of health professionals in low-income countries are facing where they feel ha- hopeless and helpless because they can't do anything without resources so when you talk about it on a global scale a lot of the it's always people always talk about the 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 conversation is focused on the local leadership but no one really wants to bring about the accountability even when you lock out, like when you start talking about issues of reparations, colonial reparations, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. A lot of people become defensive. But I think we really, as long as we do not have an accountability process for the colonial era, 
and that seeks to address some of the historical injustices, I think we'll still continue having the same issues. So I think what is important now is what lessons can we learn right now, like in this present moment in, in our various countries, and what how can we push our governments to be accountable to to how they have to to some of their colonial some of the colonial areas that are there. Uh, we need to start talking about reparations in terms of what does that look like. Uh, going forward because we have a lot of countries being exploited. We need to be honest about, because you can't talk about health without talking about politics, economics and other things. So we need to ask ourselves why are these countries still poor? Why are these countries still vulnerable to conflicts and other things? And what role are the richer nations playing in uh, contributing and on in the unrest in this in the respective countries in exploiting uh, countries? How, what, what role are, they, are the companies, the investments that are coming in terms of extracting resources and destroying the environment? And the reality is things are even going to be become more complicated with the climate crisis and other things. So I think if there is the the opportunity or we need really to address a lot of these things urgently. And so that means conversations need to be happening at multiple level. And one of the most important things that I think that I have to emphasize on is to start with accountability. And let's use the present to, to resolve these historical issues. And now start thinking about, okay, what does global solidarity really look like in terms of how, how can we have all these countries uh, now really be treated equally on a global scale? What, is, what does fair investment look like that benefits the people? How do we bridge the gap uh, how do we address some of the colonial issues that are there? How do we address the, the economic imbalances that are there? Because right now, if you look at a lot of prestigious institutions, research institutions in the in the in the in the in the global north uh, that are playing so much, whose research is contributing to economic growth and new innovations, some of them really benefited from 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 slavery. Some benefited from from some of the some of the colonial companies that were there. This is an honest conversation. This is some of the unfair advantages that people do not want to talk about. Uh, but these are some of the things that we have to think about when we are now saying, okay, going forward, if we are going to... So we can't dismiss institutions from the global south, some of them which do not have those those unfair advantages, advantages and say, well, they are adequate. But we need to have a critical lens and an honest and uncomfort- uncomfortable conversation to have that. But unfortunately, you'd find that a lot of people are willing to go there because they are unwilling to really critique their privilege. They are not willing to get into that uncomfortable space where where they have to question the, the unfair advantages that, that they have. So I, I don't have a straight or forward answer to this. But I think for me, the most important thing is to start not only the dialogue, but really to start looking into how can we start creating new systems. The systems that we have in place today were created by other, were started off by other people, be it capitalism, uh, when you talk about socialism, you know, these were all created by certain people in as, as, as the, as the, as the, as the evolve. So right now, I think the challenge that, that a lot of academics, a lot of the thinkers and other people have right now is to say, okay, going forward, these systems, yes, they seem to be working, but they are, they are like capitalism is resulting in this gap. Like what is is being concentrated on in one percent of the world? How can we rethink these models in terms of going forward? Even in terms of state, because some people you mentioned China, and they, yes, there's like every system has its pros and cons. Some say, okay, this is incredible in terms of response to a pandemic, but some people talk about freedoms and rights and democracy and other things. And but the problem is sometimes we also view things as as in in terms of polarities like extreme ends. But we don't try to look at okay, how can we look at some of the good that are in this system and the good that are in this system and come up with a middle ground. And some people I always laugh when you are when you are, when I'm with my colleagues from the years. They talk about how in years certain 
certain conversations on socialism are square words. Certain conversations on other systems make people uncomfortable because they're convinced that the systems that they have are the best systems. And they're trying to preach that to the other countries that, hey, be like us, we have functional systems. But when you look at the health outcomes, when you look at the quality of life, you tell you can clearly tell that these systems are not working. So so and I think the United States America like the particularly the the institution since they are leading they can use their privilege and power to start really looking into how best they can play a role in making this world a better place in uh, like in improving some of the inequities that are that are that are that exist amongst countries yeah yeah I mean I think that's a very uh <laughs> hopeful and and I'm glad you you mentioned that I I think um also interested in your call for reparations I would just say that when Aristide made the call for reparations he was quickly overthrown i i i think there is a deep fear in the west that if you really take account of what colonialism did um the new york times did a whole piece on haiti uh, and they suddenly discovered that haiti was robbed for um you know 200 years um and 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 really if you begin to think about what the french and the americans particularly oh haiti haiti would want to be one of the richest countries in the mm-hmm. world today Haiti would not have the problems they have they certainly would not have the health problems they have and there wouldn't be migrants dying in in the sea trying to escape yeah persecution so so i i guess i'm i'm optimistic and hopeful that but but i don't see people in power doing anything to change anything i think if the change will come it'll come from people like you who are working to make this change happen it'll it'll come through grassroots organizations and hopefully communities here you know even in this country and across the world but i am very skeptical that people who are benefiting from the system will find any reason to change it right and a lot of the issues you know i think of the african context you know we're talking about very recent history you know currently in in britain there's debates about cecil roads right and of course that has connection to 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 where you're from right and 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 uh there's a there's currently a defender right now in in a, a prominent figure in theology at Oxford who is defending Cecil Rhodes the British empire and uh the goods of colonialism and british colonialism within africa saying that Cecil Rhodes is not a racist and and all of this and so of course there's also tremendous pushback right there's tremendous challenges within the british context and and throughout europe as well to to these legacies so i wonder how that you know what what are the opportunities for reparations for thinking critically and concretely about you know what is owed what is due uh, how do we think uh, through the complexities of where we've been and where we are today i don't know if you have any <laughs> anything more to say about that i know these are really tough questions but it it, it seems like it's you know for me i i grew i was born in the 80s during the cold war context you know after this sort of you know major kind of independence movements and decolonization movements and so i grew up in a world where you know africa had nation states right it wasn't a colonized place it, so my you know so i was told and so i thought and and yet that history of colonialism in africa is so recent and decolonization is not only unfinished i think it's even a question of what might it look like for it to have begun if that didn't include reparations fundamentally yeah like maybe that's more of a comment but <laughs> yeah. it's something i've been thinking about yeah i think i think it there's for me i'm trying to i think one of the problems really is when a lot of these conversations are happening they're happening in isolation 
And sometimes the people, the most affected people, are not included in the conversation. So people are talking about them, but they're not talking with them. So even if you look at uh, some of the structures that are in place that could be used by the people, like people talk about the UN system, but you also see who has more power in those systems than the other. So already the systems that we have in place may not present the, the opportunities for for the respective countries to have an honest conversation on on be it uh, the damage that was done and and to have like um, like a truth and reconciliation if I want to loosely use that at some extent kind of framework and again and also the intersectional lens that 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 happened because where we are looking at different groups because even there are certain groups even within countries and in other so it's a yeah I think. There may not be a straight off forward answer for that, but I think a starting point is really making sure that the voices of the most affected groups are actually included in some of these conversations, in the systems and the structures that we have in place, so that we stop making decisions for them and we start we we stop stick, uh, speaking about them, but we actually start have the critical perspective in the conversation and we get in that un- uncomfortable space. Then we generally. S- map the way forward together with them not for them uh tanashi thank you so much I, i wanted to ask one last question just because i i think this is reflective of your work so we're in this we're in we the name of our group here is in the belly of the beast we're in the belly of 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 these oppressive systems interlocking and yet we can critique it and we can try to resist it and you are you've described so many systems here and yet you're part of a group that's doing vaccine equity through the campaign against racism what what does that mean and is there any call that you want people to be aware of like of 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 that labor that you're all are doing that 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 we could be in solidarity or be a support of yeah i think what i can emphasize is and encourage people to move away from the tunnel of vision i think right now there's a lot of conversation about the trips waiver let's look beyond the trips waiver because the trips waiver is only just a small part of it but let's really look at broadly broader access to 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 medicines let's look at health uh global health governance and let's start engaging those conversations be it in medical schools because it medical schools health institutions and universities because that's where a lot of the knowledge productions come in that's where the professors who sit on various boards of these global institutions come from so i think we really now need to to start having that collective conversation we are only starting and we are also learning a lot from the from the process i think we have learned a lot from various networks that we have that that we have that we have interacted with in the in the in the coalition and 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 through and we are realizing that they particularly in the global south there are a lot more there are a lot more networks that are in grassroots organization that are doing credible work that's not being realized at a global scale and that could immensely contribute so i also encourage various institutions to use their power and the privilege to try to amplify those voices to come in to forge partnerships with those people and make sure that their voices are centered those particularly from the global south i think we now need to to have a different approach where it's not it's not only the global north that's leading all the causes like right now the aids conference is happening and if you have been looking at a lot of communication a lot of the some of the people most affected groups could not make it because of visa issues and the un aids uh, uh lead a uh, lead we need tweeted about being racially profiled in geneva there are some of these issues that are that are still happening already that's affecting access and i think we should not be continue being comfortable with this mm-hmm. so it's not only about covid-19 it's not only about hiv it's about the broader systems that we are part of that's i think that's why we need really to talk about about racialized capitalism that's why we need to talk about how these oper- these systems operate and the need for them to be dismantled
Thank you, Tanache, for this opportunity to be with you and learn from you. Thanks for joining us, y'all.